So I want to take you back, and, and you go back in your own life in the same circumstance. I want you to think back to when you were just about to get your driver's license. For most of you, that might you know, be different eras and different circumstances. I realize I, almost everyone here actually got one. There's, you know, if you go back far enough, you have people that, that came after that, and they just drove when they were ready. But I want you to think back to that era. For me, uh, in that, that year, uh, my birthday was the day after Thanksgiving, and that would be when you'd go to get it, the Secretary of State. And guess what Michigan does on the day after Thanksgiving? It is a stupid holiday. Needless to say, I've been bitter to the government ever since. Uh, I was very frustrated because I couldn't get my license the day after Thanksgiving. So the following Monday, my mom, who was very loving and helpful, was like, oh, I'll take you Monday morning. That's exactly how she spoke. So we went to the Secretary of State, got my license, came back home, and it was beginning to snow. And fairly, fairly significantly, and my well, maybe I should take you to work. That's what my mom said. Now, immediately, not scripture, not anything good, what came to mind was Bill Murray. And I said, oh, I don't think the hard stuff's going to come down for quite some time. And uh, mom let me take the car. Now, that time, uh, it was a car, obviously, I was borrowing from my parents. It was a Datsun 260Z, so it was a little more of a sports car, very fit for weather, winter weather. So I get to school, feel, what do you feel when you get your license? Freedom, like I'm driving, I'm myself here. Well, this is, the, the, all the years I grew up, I don't remember another day that's happened. The snow got so significant that they shut school down halfway through and sent us home. So... My option now in my freedom is, should I take the bus and be safe or drive the car? Which do you think I chose? I chose the car. And back then, parents couldn't communicate. It's not like mom could text me, oh, wait, I'll get you. I, she had, there's nothing she could do. She didn't even know what was going to happen. So I, I get one of my friends to ride with me because he lives fairly close, uh, just offering him a ride, Kevin. So he gets in the car, and we get out of the parking lot. Now, the snow's coming down significantly. I've I've taken it off as a teenager does, so I can see, not really all of it. Um, and as we drive, suddenly my windshield wipers stop working. And now I, have, I can't see anymore. So I just said, Lord, I, I saw Luke Skywalker do this. No, I didn't do that. Uh, Kevin, my friend, grabbed the, the uh, scraper and opened the window and literally held out the side. And the whole way back to his house, he scraped my, he was a, a personal windshield wiper. So I get back to his house, and I want you to, you to know, if you, this is rear-wheel drive cars, and a Datsun has some serious power to it, which, by the way, when it wasn't snowing, that, oh, wish I could tell you other stories, but they're not right. So we get to his house and make it fine. He then rolls up the window, leaves, and I'm like, well, let's see how I go the rest of the time by myself. And I do, now I have the windshield wiper out myself, and I'm doing it as I'm driving. I get home, everything's fine, safe, all good to go. Oh, I'm so glad you're home. All the good things happen. And, uh, and what I realize as I get home is I love the freedom of having my license. In fact, I had waited for years for it, and I knew it would be a new level of freedom. But, you know, over time, after months went on and even years, it kind of loses its luster, doesn't it? Eh, I have to go here. I have to go there. It didn't really give me what I thought it would. In fact, if you're like me, I picked new things after that. Maybe it was when I graduate. Maybe it's when... I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's like this. Do you have it where you look ahead and go, when this happens, then I'll be good. Then I'll be free. As adults, it can be even things like when I'm completely paid off my house, I'm free. When I reach retirement, when our bank account reaches this, when fill in the blank, we put external things around us and we say, when those reach what they should, then I'm free. We kind of live with an external view of what freedom is, and we all seek it, and we all desire it. We all want to live this way. 
Now, I bring that up because Paul, as he writes this, church, this letter to this group of people in an area of Galatia, in case you don't know, Galatia is an area in what's now Turkey. It was Asia Minor. It's a series of Roman kind of uh, cities, and it's all through the southern part of Turkey. So if you're looking at a map of Turkey and look at the lower end, it's going to be in the lower part, really towards the, towards the, uh, the west on that side. Now, he writes this letter because what's happened is as he followed Jesus, he had this really miraculous experience of who Jesus is. He began to tell other people about it and go to all these cities, and other people began to believe, and it began to change the whole city as these people became followers of Jesus. Now, along the way, he starts to hear that these places where he's seen the change are starting to struggle. They're starting to have infighting and problems, and this letter is all in response to that. So if you haven't been with us, this is week six of eight weeks. We've been looking through this letter at different things Paul is talking to them about, which really in many ways apply to us today. And where we've reached in the letter is a point where he's trying to remind them of what it means to live for Christ and what it is. And he literally uses the word freedom. And he says this very simply. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You stand firm then. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, I want to spend a little time fleshing this out for it, explaining it to us, highlighting a few things for us, just because I think it will help us for where we're going the rest of the morning. Now, he says it very simply this way, freedom, Christ set us free for. In other words, he's given us something that we're to have and to sustain. We can live a new way in the freedom of what he's done. Now, you have to really be clear on this. Where they lived, they were not free. They lived under oppressive Roman rule. They lived with all sorts of a kind of stratification and caste system. They, none of them, or at least most of them, didn't live very much in a comfortable life. So when he's already telling them they're free, he's saying, oh, by the way, it's not everything around you. What Jesus has given you is a new way of life, a new season, a new work. You can even think about it this way, and we'll come back to it at the end of the series he describes regularly that Jesus begins a new creation. And what he's saying is, God made the heavens and the earth. He made humanity. We fall into sin. We all have this mess. Everything's in decay. When Jesus rises, it's the dawn of a new day with a new people, a new family. And he's saying, guess what? No matter what your external circumstances are, you can actually live in freedom. Now, come on, that's amazing, isn't it? And I want to be really clear. This is something we struggle with because... You and I consider freedom, economic freedom, kind of circumstantial freedom, comfortability. They're all things that are external. That's what we do. And because we have those things going for us, we can basically misunderstand what freedom really is. And what freedom really is, is a new way of life and a new way of relationship and a new way of love only under the power of Jesus. So he's saying, listen, there's a new freedom you have. He gave it to you not for momentary, not for later, but for all time. And then he has to say this, you need to stand firm. In other words, it's not going to be easy. This is a theme, by the way, that Paul gives regularly to the church. Hey, you've got these great things that Christ has done, these great things you're to live into, and by the way, it's going to be work to stand firm in them. In other words, it's not something you just kind of chill out and it's all good. It's going to be something you have to stand firm in. And then he says, don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is, I want you to understand the metaphor of this because the way he's speaking about it and what he's doing very simply is to give us a picture of what he means by freedom and what he means by slavery and how easy it is to go back into it and not stand firm in it. And that's where we're going to go next with this idea. I want to give you a picture, kind of a way of understanding this. 
that I think Paul is going to, which is Israel's history. So I'm going to give you three pictures from the history and just explain it to you because I think it's both something that happened, but it's a metaphor as well for how we are to understand life in Christ. So the first picture is a picture of Israel in slavery. That's all this means. Israel's in slavery to Egypt. Now, if you've been around for any part of the series, every week we talk about Abraham because one of the things Paul goes back to is that through Abraham, who basically God said, I'm going to change the world through your seed, this old dude that he and his wife can't even have kids. He's going to miraculously give a kid later to, and it's going to change the trajectory. He says, your nation will be blessed, but the whole world will be blessed through you, through your seed. In other words, all these great things are going to happen. Now, after that happens for Abraham, and even the good things do, through a series of events, and we're not going to go into detail, Israel, this group of people, small family at the time, end up in Egypt in the moment to help them, but ultimately they keep growing, and it, so much growth they become slaves in Egypt. So now this great promise God has given, they're stuck in slavery for 400 years. Whew! Tell me you wouldn't be hopeless after that. Which, by the way, is something for us to be reminded of. Let's be honest in our culture. If we don't see hope tomorrow, we're, we're bummed out, and we think that God's not there. 400 years. Man, sometimes we don't get to see the answers in our lifetime but we actually believe God will change the world. So what happens is, after these 400 years, a series of events happens. Moses is this mouthpiece for Israel. He comes to the Pharaoh. All these events happen. God ultimately frees them from their slavery, from their bondage. And there's even a moment after they're freed when Egypt comes after them and God parts the waters and Israel walks through it. Now, the reason that's significant for us as Christians is that actual picture of their physical slavery is a picture of what we say is sin, that you and I live in slavery to sin, meaning the messes in our lives that are both done to us and that we cause are a result of our brokenness with God and with each other that we can't fix. And so when Jesus comes, he lives and dies and rises again, the waters parting that they walk through is a very picture of the very baptism from death to life Jesus has that we walk through. I want you to see the metaphor of all this because it's also metaphor. Now where they end up with after they get out of Egypt is in the desert. And the desert is such a significant place. In fact, it's the place that much of the Bible is written because much of what God does, he does here. You don't have to see it in detail, but there's a big tabernacle in the middle. That, they made that for God's presence to dwell. He told them to, and then they're all to camp around it. So they live in all these tents, basically around his presence. That's where they live. Now they're going to go from here to what's called the land of milk and honey, which is the promised land, and they're going to have everything he promised them, and it will be a new and better life, which they do get to. Now I want to pause here because some things happen in this journey in the wilderness. And I want to remind you, this is kind of an image of from death to life, what Jesus wants for us in life. But I want to take you for a minute just to understand some things about the desert specifically, but even about how Israel lived in all this. So we know here they are in slavery, all right? That's where they start. And we would use that image as that's how we start in life. We're in bondage. We're bound by slavery. We call this very simply the desert of dependence. And the reason I want to call it that is Israel is so centered on who God is and being around him that every moment of every day they're fixed on who he is. They're living in an ongoing dependence. So there, it actually says he's a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. 
The pillar of cloud is during the day. And in case you don't know, clouds in the desert keep it from getting too hot. He's keeping them. And at night, he's a fire, which keeps them from getting cold in the desert. It's crazy, just the practicality of that. But they go when he goes and they stay when he stays. Everything is dependent on him. And that's how they live. Now, the crazy part is, while they're living in this dependence and constantly with him, they get very disheartened multiple times. So there's one moment where they're disheartened and they're, they're fearful they're going to die. And they basically go, oh, Moses, would you send us? We wish we were back in slavery. We we're back in Egypt. This just is horrible. I, I mean, you do realize how crazy that is, right? Take us back to the miserable slave life because now we're scared and we don't really trust you in this. And it happens for different reasons. One of them is that they're eating manna every day. That's what God gives them miraculously. And by the way, manna is just what is it? That's what it means. And they're like, I don't know. I've had enough of this. What is it? I want something better than this. And so God, and they say, we'd rather go back to Egypt and eat what we ate there. We had great meals. That is not true, by the way. But do you get the picture? They're getting out into freedom. And any moment it's threatened, let's take us back to where we were. I want you to just get the picture because can't we do the same thing? I'll head back to here. I, this thing requires I trust you in all this. By the way, God not only provides them with quail, he gives them so much, he says it will stuff your nostrils and it will be coming out. Like, I'll give you what you want. You want some of this? I'm going to give you some of this, which I just think is so funny that he does that to them. Apparently you don't, but I do. So, but they're learning to live with him centered in their lives in the desert. That's what's happening. And in case you don't know, Jesus, many of you will be familiar with the story. It says that Jesus, at the beginning of his work and ministry, went to the wilderness, to the desert, and goes through these temptations. And we always think of it as just a pathway through, but it is a picture of, meaning Jesus lives in the wilderness. Now, every time Jesus goes to be with the Father in all the Gospels, it uses the same word for wilderness to the desert. He goes to a isolated, lonely place, which means wilderness. It's a picture for us that Jesus builds his life as the Son of God, as human, fully human, fully God, in the presence of the Father. He goes to the tent of meeting. He's constantly communing with God, and that's feeding everything else. It's really a simple idea that we live in the desert of dependence everywhere we are because that's how we live with him. Because I want to tell you this about the land of milk and honey, which is what this is. That's what, Jesus, or that's what God promises they'll live in, milk and honey, which I have to tell you, I, I look at that honey and I just love it. Whenever I go to get tea at the coffee shop I go to, I always ask for a huge amount of honey and they just look at me like something's wrong with you. And I finally told them I was Winnie the Pete. And, uh, and they still look at me like, dude, you're going to need to be taking medication later but I'm, I'm, because of my health, but I'm, I'm working on that. Now, here's the crazy part about when Israel gets here. You'd think they would be all in good place because that's what God promised. But what happens is they begin to forget God. They begin to absorb the cultures around them and attach other gods to it. And, and they, they do two basic things that God has just broken with them over. One is they put other gods alongside of God. And the other is they forget those who are most oppressed and in despair. Because they kind of get to a place where they think, we earned this, it's their problem. That's what they live in. And they live in their own lives and think they've done it themselves. And guess what that is? That is a different kind of slavery. That's what they live in. So in both places, they're prone to go back here and not live here. Whether it's an oppressive slavery or a slavery of abundance, it moves us into a place of slavery. I'll just ask it to you this way. I just want you to think about this. So if the way we live in freedom and stand firm is communing with God regularly and frequently, let's be honest of what we say about it. You know what? I need an espresso shot of God. 
I got three minutes. I get a verse sometimes in the morning that's emailed to me. Maybe I pray in my car once in a while. You know, if things are going bad, I might offer it up. Oh, it's going to be bad weather. Maybe he'll pray to fix that. My business deal, I want it to go better. But we don't live in communion with him. We kind of give a quick shot because what do we say? Our lives are too busy. I hear that all the time. All the time. You have no idea all the things I have going on. And you know what that is? That's slavery. We're just in slavery to our stuff, our opportunities, and our resources. Are you getting the picture? I, I think it's really important we do because we're looking outside of ourselves to have freedom. And in our effort to have freedom, we actually have a hidden slavery we don't even realize. And then what we want God to do is give us a quick shot to make it better. And he's going, did you not see the picture of living in my presence? So I, I don't want to make light of this. I want us to understand, I, I certainly cannot make you spend more time with God. And I have no belief that I will convince you of it. Well, that makes sense. I'm going to change tomorrow. I just want you to be in the ache over the fact that you're not able to really live in freedom. And make no mistake, even those of you who do very well financially, you will still not live in freedom. Your finances will never protect you from illness. It will never protect you from complete agreement with the people around you. It will never protect you from living in a perfect way. It will just make you comfortable. That's not freedom. I, I thought it's important we get a picture, and I think this is a good picture for us because we can be reminded, listen, we're prone by our own nature to move to our own slavery, and what God says is, did you not know if you can live like you're in the desert of dependence that you can live anywhere? That's where you learn. When you learn to live discovering the presence of God, and make no mistake, I'm not saying now you have a quiet time, it'll all get better. I'm saying this is a journey, and we'll do anything we can to help you on it. What we don't want you to do is pretend it's okay when it's not or pretend a shot of, instead of espresso, I need my quick spirit shot, or I need my God response, because my life's running. It's something bigger than that. Okay, that's where we start on this. We're gonna keep going, because Paul keeps going on this too, and, and where he goes is he's getting very specific now, because for this group, they've gotten stuck in the, kind of in the Jewish law, and they've, they've made circumcision the whole rule. If you're going to follow Jesus, you also, the men have to all get circumcised. And basically, Paul says, listen, if you do that, you have to abide by all the laws. In other words, once you believe it's rules that make you free, that's how you live. And I don't want us to miss, that's true for all of us. Whatever your sets of rules are, if you think that's what's going to ultimately do it, you'll be subjected to all of them. And so Paul continues down that mindset. You're, what? You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated, alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Now, he's not telling you that God moved away. What he's saying is by fallen away and even alienated, he's saying the way you're living moves you away from him. You're, you're, you're moving away from the very freedom Jesus came to bring you because he brought you freedom from something you could never change on your own. And so whatever you use to justify your life, whether it's rules, whether it's different kind of values or circumstances, it will never get you closer to him. It will move you away. That's simply what he's trying to help us understand. In other words, when you live this way, you either move into the slavery of oppression or the slavery of much, but you move into slavery one way or another, which alienates you from Jesus. Now he continues and really takes us to the heart of his 
meaning and argument through this. Okay, you can have free, you can, you can have, stand firm in it. Here's how. Through the Spirit, through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Righteousness, he means simply the way we live differently in him. For Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Next week, we'll get into this more, but Paul begins by saying, guess what? You and I cannot change ourselves. We need the Spirit. It's through his very presence and power. We tell you this regularly. Where does the Spirit live as followers of Jesus? In us. The very presence of God resides in us, which, by the way, new creation. You want to talk about power? God makes the heavens and the earth. He makes this place that he's going to dwell. He even has Israel build a temple. When Jesus rises, when he dies and rises... He makes the temple us. It's no longer a geography, it's a people. Everywhere we go, we are to bring his presence and change the world. It's by his spirit that we do it. And what will be the effect of changing the world? It will be through love. (laughs) It sounds silly, and I think, unfortunately, we get sentimentality with it. But it's a very simple idea that it's actually how we are with each other that will change the world. Paul says this over and over again, in case you don't know. Regularly, he says, listen, may your love abound more and more. May God's spirit fill you with love that you treat each other differently. Jesus, actually, when he's praying to the Father, before he goes to be with the Father, he says this, Father, the glory you gave me, the glory I had from the beginning of time when I made the heavens and the earth, the glory that causes creation, you've given me that I would give it to my followers. You know why? Or how? So we can love each other and love the people around us. In other words, I'm going to give them my glory, which will show itself in how they are with each other and people outside of them, how they actually love people. Now, can we all admit that we're not very loving? Because if we were, and I mean this for the church in general, I'm not speaking of us individually, if the church were loving, the world would be looking right now. Because let's be honest, we're pretty hateful to each other, aren't we, as a whole world? Amen? True? And, and this should be painful and convicting because it is to me. So I begin with, guess what? You and I, we need to learn what it means to have the Spirit live in us and change us. Espresso shot Jesus won't do it for us. Espresso spirit won't do it for us. Stand firm, that means you live in the desert of dependence. You learn to commune with God. It's a bigger ask than just a few little things to make it a little better and keep on your merry way. You'll never get there. And the beauty of this part is he's basically saying, you want to know how faith grows? It grows as we live in love. In other words, as we move out, as the Spirit leads us and we love people better, our faith grows. And doesn't it sometimes take faith to love the people around you? I should have heard like 10 amens to that. I know people would be saying if they're on me, oh, amen. So true. I, I want you just to consider this with me. I want to show you two poles of how love is living out today and how we perceive it in culture that both to me are clearly incomplete and really lack love, but they give the illusion of it by how we talk about it. And there are two divergent views, and I think you may say I'm not either one of these, but I guarantee you all of us have elements of these. Because, well, let let me show you them and then I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. One of them at one end is that love really means seeing everything as acceptable and good. In other words, if I really love you, I will agree, endorse, and basically stand with you on everything you believe about yourself and value. That's love 
is unconditional endorsement. That's how we see it. Now, the irony of this end is if you don't agree that that's what it is, then you're not lovable, which is ironic, isn't it? We love everything in every way they think unless the way they think isn't the way we think they should think. That's exactly what I'm saying. Now, let me move to the other side, which is much more of, of how people in church tend to be. Love is focused on calling out what is an error. Hey, you know what? If I really loved you, I would tell you the truth about how this is wrong or how this is off. The problem is we don't want to do it out of love. We often want to do it out of superiority. I'm right. You're wrong. You need to know you're wrong. It's really, <laughs> it's really loving to tell you how wrong you are. Can you feel the love as I tell you right now? And so we have this kind of polarization where it's unconditional endorsement or it's arrogant disdain. And really both of them have an arrogance because they think that they're right and everyone else is wrong. And that's how we see it. Now, you can tell yourself, I know there's a lot of other people that do this, but it's not me. And it's just not true. We need to all realize we have let our love grow cold. Let's be honest about it. We certainly look at people at times arrogantly with disdain. We certainly look at people and say, you're not loving what's wrong with you. And we say, if they're wrong on this, they're wrong on everything. I do not want to be with them or be around them because of this. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it in marriages struggle. We're seeing generational struggle. We're seeing friendships break over this. I guarantee most of us have a friend that they are not as close to right now as they were a year ago because something got between them and they said, you know what? can't love you if that's where you are. Don't want to be around you. Tell me how that's becoming a people that are known by their love. I like to call Jesus' love radical love, that it's a different way. It's a way very simply that looks at people and says, I see the dignity and the honor of that person made in God's image. I may not agree with anything they say, but I can still look at them with honor and dignity. And by the way, treat them with respect. Do you know that we have lost our ability to challenge, uh, disagree, and not say it in incredibly hurtful ways? And here's my favorite part. We see it when other people do it, but we're blind to when we do. I cannot believe they said that. That is so mean and divisive. And then we send something else that's just as horrible and hard. It's painful. And here's the beauty. You know, it was some years ago that God led us to this, what I think is a really beautiful mission statement of this idea of being radically loving and growing together in Christ. And I believe it's a wonderful way to see how Jesus changes us and calls us to love each other. Because what we said about it is this. We continue to deepen our understanding of how much Jesus loves us. And by the way, the more we understand that, the better we'll see out. In case you don't know this, this is a learning for me. But I realize normally when I'm really at a place where I can't love, I'm probably at a place where I'm still broken. And I don't really understand what love is because when I really understand how loved I am and how God loves me regardless of my failings and problems, I can extend that to other people. So whenever one of us says, oh no, you just don't realize I can't love them, what we're really saying is I'm broken and I can't see them the way God does. It's painful. We say radical love is learning to meet people where they are and loving them in it. And then we have this beautiful thing, we call it growing together in Christ, where we lock arms and we move towards Jesus. And guess what? There's going to be a lot of things in our culture right now we don't agree about. And even things that we see biblically that we don't agree about. And, and I don't know how to fix all those, but I know this. We're going to have to sit in relationship with each other and walk and ask God to meet us. That's how we love each other. 
Not by going, oh, by the way, I got to tell you all the reasons I'm right and you're wrong. And once you figure it out, then I'll love you. Because that's what we do today. We are drawing lines saying it must be this or it must be that. And in case you don't know, that is slavery. We are becoming enslaved to unspoken, unwritten, or even worse, spoken and written rules that extend beyond the gospel. It is a powerful thing Jesus calls us to. And what I love is, can we just admit, I'll do it this way. If you know you can't do this on your own, raise your hand. Yeah, guess what? Not, there's not a person on the planet that can do this on their own. That's why he says, I give you my spirit. What we do is we go, God, I don't know how to love right now. God, this is painful for the way they talk to me, and I don't know how to walk and still trust them or forgive them or love them. God, I don't know how to move in this situation. Oh, I'm worried about this. We give them to him and go, God, would you help? Your spirit help me. And that will not come in an espresso prayer or a quick shot of Jesus. It comes in dependence, desert dependence, communing again and again with him. It's a journey, not a moment. That's how we're going to live, standing firm in freedom in life. But Paul finishes it this way. And I love what he says. He's kind of reminding them, you were running a good race. Man, you had so many good things I saw. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying truth? In other words, there are leaders and voices that are calling you to alienate each other. Tell me that's not true today. People are saying, you're with me or you're with them. It's constant, inside and outside the church. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. And then he says this, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Now, fortunately, I don't cook. When I cook, it's just not pretty. If it's a microwave or something or a grill, I'm okay. But I do understand this. When you have leaven, it needs through the dough, and it needs through to, to change the whole thing. It changes the whole composition, a little bit of it. Now, Israel understood that to mean sin, by the way, over time. So when they go to leave Egypt, God says, go and fast and don't even put leaven in the bread. It becomes an image of Jesus' life, which is without leaven. And by the way, that bread doesn't rise, it's flat. In case you wonder what creates the major problem in our lives of sin, it's pride. It puffs us up. It's a picture of it. Everything that puts us above others or against others that way is what that does. And he's basically saying when you let any area in, it will need through the rest of your life. So all you should be asking is, are there areas right now I am unloving, unforgiving, and caring? And you go, that's going to begin to need through your life. And he's saying, don't let any of it in. You've got to live in a different way, because it'll get through everything, not just one area. I simply want to give you this thought to consider, this perspective to move in. How are you seeking the Holy Spirit to help you become more loving? How are you building a desert dependence that you get alone with God and you commune with him and you discover, and you don't know how, man, we want to help, but please don't settle for just a little bit of an espresso shot. We got a God who wants to fill us. And then two questions you could be asking that might help you in this. What values must others comply with in order to be loved by you? What are the things you've added to who Jesus is and said, they have to do this for me to love them? And by the way, they don't have to even follow Jesus. You do realize we're called to love people that don't follow Jesus. That's not a condition of our love. When we see people the way he does, in fact, he calls us to reach out and love, especially people that don't follow him. It's crazy. I, I found that we actually would sooner love people that don't follow him as long as they agree with some other things, which is just sad to me. 
What do they have to comply with be loved by you? And the simple other one is stop looking out. You, who do you need to seek forgiveness from? Are there places you've been unloving and you need to go back and go, God, I, I got this wrong. I'm just sorry. Just to begin to hear the pain you've caused in the unloving way you've been. By the way, those expressions of love is how faith is built and how God moves in us. We have a mission that will change the world. It will just not happen through little espresso shots of God. And it will definitely not happen by us drawing lines saying it's this or that. I'm either going to correct you or I'm going to accept everything. Neither is the full picture of love or the heart of love. Let me pray for us. God, I am asking, as I did at the beginning, that whatever you want to say to each person, whatever you want to do with us together, you do. I am asking, Lord, for a fresh outpouring of your spirit on us. God, we need you. And whether we even are asking or not, I'm asking you to graciously give it. I'm praying, too, for a dissatisfaction with little, small experiences with you, rarely. I'm asking you to begin to show us the places we've become enslaved to other ways of life that we need to start setting down. And God, would you help us not only to walk in freedom, but to stand firm in it. I did not live in slavery and to live in a place that faith is expressed in love. We need you. We need your spirit to move. So pour your presence out on us. I pray for any who are among us that just are living in doubt and question, and especially those who've been hurt by Christians by our unloving way. Would you minister to them and just remind them where we've failed, it's not showing you. It just means we've missed it. And would you begin to pour your love and healing on them too. I pray this in your name. Amen.